Hello and welcome to our webinar covering litigation options for universities, hospitals, and research institutions. This is Bill Sock from Classical Immigration Partners. We'll get that started in just a moment. First, putting up this slide to help those who are still figuring out their audio and uh, interaction options while everybody is still logging in. You'll see on the left, on the right side of your uh, screen, the control dashboard, so uh, that you can interact with us by either uh, making a chat or asking a question using the question pane. Uh, we do ask that you go ahead and type your questions into that question pane. You can do so at any time. We'll either work those questions into the presentation or else we will make sure to leave time at the end for questions and answers. But uh, just so you know, that question pane will be the only way to get questions to us. There won't be a way to ask questions uh, through audio. So this is the last webinar in a four-part series. Recordings of all of these webinars will be available on our website, and we will be publishing them as bonus episodes for our podcast, Statutes of Liberty, which is available on iTunes and Stitcher and all those other places where you can get your podcast subscriptions. We will also email a recording of this webinar to everyone who registered for it. So now we'll briefly introduce uh, the speakers, Ron Clasco, of course, uh, nationally known immigration attorney, former president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and litigator extraordinaire, uh, will be uh, enlightening us with some of the litigation that has been done on behalf of universities around the country. Uh, I'm Bill Stock. I've also been president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and have litigated a few cases myself and have worked extensively with universities uh, since uh, the early 1990s. And finally, our partner, Dan Lundy, who comes to us uh, with a great deal of litigation background in the district and circuit courts uh, and who heads up our litigation practice. So we'll be hearing from all three of these about what you're interested in hearing, which is not our biographies. So let's get started. So Ryan, let's start with you. And uh, let's start with uh, what I think of as the big questions that stop people from even thinking about litigation as an option. Uh, and that is, is the government going to hate me uh, and, and take uh, revenge on all my other cases? Uh, you know, what's it going to cost and how are we going to deal with the adverse publicity that's going to come out? Uh, so can you give us a little background there? Sure, Bill. Thank you. And uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending on what part of the country you're in. Good to talk to you. Uh, Bill, as, as you know, we've, we've, we deal with companies, we deal with universities, we deal with individuals on litigation. And uh, the fears that people have are similar, although I would say we see it even more so with universities and hospitals maybe than we do with, with our other clients. Uh, a lot of the fears are, are dissipating simply because um, we're all experiencing delays that are unprecedented, denials that are unprecedented, and people are beginning to see results from the unprecedented amount of litigation that's going on that actually is achieving uh, much quicker adjudications uh, and, and reversals of, of denials. So the, the, the key things we see from our clients, uh, including and maybe especially universities and hospitals, number one is probably the fear of retaliation. Um, and, and what I always tell uh, someone when they ask this is, number one is I've been litigating for several decades uh, and I can report uh, no instance where I have seen uh, anything that would seem to be retaliation by the government for my client litigating. Uh, 
what people don't necessarily understand is this is not something the government takes personally. They get lawsuits filed in federal court against them every day. It's just a normal, you know, normal course of business. Um, I, I head up uh, the, the uh, litigation task force of, of AILA, um, and on our task force, we have a few people who are former government litigators. And what they answer to this question is not only, you know, in their experience has it not happened, but it's almost to them laughable because they say, first of all, you know, the, the concept that the government would have the time or effort or interest or inclination to put together a group of uh, these universities and these companies and these individuals have litigated, so we want to put them on a blacklist. And secondly, that even if they wanted to do that, that they really could efficiently is to them laughable. So I think we see no reason to fear retaliation. Costs, of course, depend on, you know, what lawyers you're dealing with. I can tell you that when we first started doing litigation, we did it all on an hourly rate basis uh, on the theory that it, you really can't predict what's going to happen. As we do more and more of this, we realize that everything is extremely predictable. And 90, 95% of the cases play out the same way. So we are now able in almost all cases to work on a fixed fee basis. Um, we know that in some cases, there may be the possibility of the government paying the legal fees through something called the Equal Access to Justice Act, but you can't count on that. And in some cases where, for example, we're gonna talk about uh, OPTEADs, there may be a situation where 30 uh, uh, students at a university may all want to be plaintiffs in the same lawsuit, which makes it uh, even less expensive for any individual. Um, there's some concern that people have or universities and hospitals have that, well, we don't want the world to know that we're suing the government. And the good news on that is that in, in most cases, I would say in almost all cases, we can prepare the litigation in a way that nobody is going to know that the institution is a plaintiff in litigation. Um, and the last thing I mentioned that uh, has a lot to do with whether you're afraid of going to court um, is that, and because a lot of times, you know, I hear from clients, well, you know, an AAO appeal is fine, but litigation is not. Well, the AAO appeal can often take a year or more and have a way less chance of success than litigation, which may take two to four months and have a much greater chance of success. Well, so let's start with kind of a big deal litigation that uh, is ongoing and that directly affects universities and hospitals and research institutions. And, and that is, uh, you know, with the, uh, about a year ago now, the, uh, the agencies uh, that deal with students tried to change the rules, that tried to uh, say that uh, students accumulate unlawful presence uh, not as under the current definition of duration of status um, only when there is an adjudication that they fell out of status, uh, but really any time they fall out of status as the Immigration Service may determine by reviewing records years and years later. Uh, and of course, a number of colleges were very, very concerned about that. And uh, Ron, you led up an effort to put together a coalition of colleges to bring the litigation and your co-counsel on it. So can you uh, talk us through the, the, how that litigation came about and, and what's going on in it? Yeah, I'm gonna do this quickly because I think most people on, on the line uh, know what the, the situation is, but 
Um, this is a perfect example of, of where litigation has achieved a wonderful result uh, for universities and hospitals, for people who have uh, in their population Fs and Js, because the, the government rule that would have created unlawful presence for so many of these people uh, would have really been a horrible result. Uh, this is an example of where we were in contact with dozens and dozens of universities who were very concerned about this. In the end, only four colleges and universities were interested in being plaintiffs. Over 50 uh, were involved in the funding of the litigation, and over 50 were involved in being amicus curiae on the litigation. In addition to the colleges and universities, the American Federation of Teachers was a plaintiff. And the long and short of this is we, we sued on, on uh, two main grounds. One is that the government had to go through notice and comment rulemaking before they changed a 21-year interpretation of unlawful presence, and they didn't do that. And two is that, in our opinion, the uh, new position of the government is contrary to the language of the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, specifically Section 212A9. Um, and the, we, so we filed a complaint in federal court uh, we filed for a preliminary injunction, uh, and uh, the uh, the judge in uh, in the district court in North Carolina, uh, uh, after hearing oral argument, uh, granted a nationwide preliminary injunction on the basis that uh, we were likely to succeed when there's a final decision. The nationwide preliminary injunction that was issued in May of 19. Uh, still now, I guess it's about eight months later, it still exists because the judge has not issued a final decision. Um, she agreed with us both on, the, uh, on, on both of our grounds. One is that the government interpretation was uh, uh, not consistent with the language of the statute and also because the government didn't do notice and comment rulemaking. Uh, from our point of view, we're perfectly happy with the status quo. Um, as until the judge makes a decision, the government is enjoined from implementing their memo. They've taken it down from their website, uh, and there's no uh, uh, no intention that we see on their part to implement it. And if the injunction keeps going, then that stays the same. The fact that the judge specifically said that we are likely to succeed on the merits gives us optimism that when she issues a final decision, it will be in our favor, which means that the injunction will continue. The government will have a right to appeal if they wish to, but at least for now, and at least for the indefinite future until any next steps, um, our, our Fs and Js uh, have no fear of the uh, implementation of the change in unlawful presence policy. And then really, very quickly, the major change was that uh, from the time that unlawful presence was put into the law, um, uh, the government has agreed, actually I was general counsel of, of AILA at the time and we negotiated this with the government, um, uh, agreed that if, if you have somebody who is in DS status, they don't accrue unlawful presence unless and until there's an actual finding that they're out of status. That remains the law today because the government's attempt to change that is, is subject to the injunction. That's really great, Ron. And, and you know, I should point out that uh, there have been uh, large litigation efforts on behalf of a number of 
these kinds of policy-related uh, decisions in the current administration. Um, and sometimes these are happening, you know, at the very highest level. So uh, the state of Washington, for example, went to the Supreme Court and sued to stop the travel ban, uh, in part because it owns and operates the University of Washington. And it made the point that uh, the University of Washington was adversely affected by uh, the new policy that uh, was the travel ban. So uh, we see universities increasingly being brought into these large uh, policy level fights and litigations with the government. Uh, and of course, these sorts of nationwide injunctions are useful when it comes to uh, a policy change that's either acknowledged by the government uh, or, or published by the government. Uh, but a lot of times there are going to be policy shifts or things that we see in the adjudication world uh, that are not a big policy shift, but that have a really disparate impact on a particular person. So the first of these, of course, is when a case simply isn't decided. You might file an H-1B petition <clears throat> and not get any response at all. You don't get a request for evidence. You don't get a response whatsoever. Well, you might answer a request for evidence and never hear back. You might file uh, an adjustment of status application or an immigrant visa petition or even a change of status application and get no answer. So, you know, it, there, there have been in the past ways to uh, effectively deal with the agency and say, hey, this is outside of normal processing times. Uh, traditionally, those ways have included uh, following up directly with a service center. Well, that's off the table now. Uh, you can use the 1-800 the number to submit an inquiry or use the online case inquiry, but very often all you get back is a, an acknowledgement that, yes, we acknowledge this case is late and, and it doesn't give you much help. You can go to a senator's office or a representative's office, uh, or you can go to the uh, DHS ombudsperson. Uh, but again, very often, all the only response you're going to back is, "Yeah, you know, it, it, we're taking longer with this case." And of course, overall, government processing times are up by over 90 percent uh, uh, for most types of cases. So, the going to court is a remedy for these kinds of extraordinary delays. Dan, why don't you talk to us about? this uh, mandamus uh, kind of case for delayed cases. Sure, Bill. So a mandamus is simply an, a type of action to compel a decision. Um, it's not a, it's not an action to compel an approval. It's just simply asking a court and a judge to order the government to act. So mandamus, uh, we have, uh, there's a mandamus statute. There's also something under the Administrative Procedures Act. So a mandamus, action under the mandamus statute is to compel an agency to perform a duty where you have a clear right for them to do that thing that you want them to do. The government has a duty to do that thing and there's no other remedy available at law. So normally we, you know, we meet this, it's not a problem, but the Administrative Procedures Act gives us another avenue where we can challenge, we can seek an order compelling the government to do any action that is unreasonably delayed. And, you know, for a variety of technical reasons that I'm not going to go into right now, sometimes it's easier to meet that standard than the mandamus standard. So we bring them both. Um, you know, interesting story, Bill was just talking. Uh, we had a case that we, uh, the government in an EB-5 case actually lost the file. Uh, we filed you know, almost three years ago. They lost the file. We made inquiries, and uh, honestly, nobody would have ever found out that we 
that they lost the file if we hadn't filed the mandamus case. So, uh, interesting story there. So it's a great way to escalate a case where not only is there a delay in the decision, but there seems to be no good reason for the delay. Uh, and uh, so if we uh, go to where we look at this. So first off, we do want the case to be well beyond whatever the published processing times are. Usually something that's four to six months beyond normal processing times is the minimum that we would recommend before thinking about a mandamus action. And we also want to have done uh, follow-ups with the agency and be able to document that we've made inquiries, we've sent follow-ups, and that those have not been satisfactorily answered because we want to show the court that we've done everything we could to solve the problem without bothering the court with it. The other place where mandamus may be very useful is where the timing is much shorter, but because of the statutory uh, uh, strict scheme that gives some kind of a benefit, that basically the benefit will be lost if the government does not make its adjudication quickly. So, you know, one example where there's a change of status to H-1B, the, H the F-1 has a cap gap employment authorization, so they're only authorized to work until September 30th. If that, if we're getting close to October the 1st and we don't have a decision on that underlying H petition, that would be a reason, no matter how long the case has been pending, to be able to go in and say, as a matter of mandamus, the government has a duty to do this, and they have a duty to do it quickly because the statute clearly provides a benefit which assumes the adjudication of the H petition by October 1st. So uh, anytime there's a situation like that, uh, uh, for example, OPT, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. If the issuance of OPT is delayed so that it, you know, it has to conclude within the 14 months after graduation, that's another situation where the regulatory scheme provides a kind of a deadline where you can say, hey, I'm losing something that the statute or the regulations give me, gives me a benefit to. So how do we actually do this uh, if we're going into court on a mandamus case, Dan? Well, so as you said, first we're going to make sure that we've made a couple of inquiries with USCIS to document the fact that they're futile and, and have done nothing. Um, then we're going to draft a complaint, and that complaint is going to set forth, you know, all the pertinent dates of filing and all the things that, you know, the things that we've done to try to get a decision. Um, it's going to discuss the hardships faced from not having that decision. Um, and then we're going to file that complaint. We're going to serve the government with that complaint. The government then has 60 days to answer. Um, usually within that period, they we find out who the U.S. attorney is representing the government and we will reach out to them and try to negotiate a settlement. And, you know, in, in our experience, in 95 to 99% of mandamus cases, uh, we magically get a decision within two to four months of filing the, or, or action on the case, whether it's an RFE, annoyed, or, uh, or just an approval. Um, we get some kind of action generally within two to four months of filing the case. If for some reason the government decides that it's going to fight us on the mandamus, which almost never happens, um, then we would go to, we would file motions for summary judgments. Uh, the government had a chance to file a motion um, and we would brief the case and we would ask the judge to actually issue an order. Again, very, very, very rare, but this would extend the timeline to, you know, six months, possibly a year on a mandamus. Usually not, but possibly. Now, Ron, you've uh, 
talked extensively about OPD uh, and EAD delays that we had last summer. Why don't you talk to us about how we were thinking about using a mandamus in that situation? Yeah, so I, I would say in the last year, year and a half, I've had more contact with uh, universities and hospitals on on litigation than ever before. Uh, at, you know, the first thing was the unlawful presence, and uh, then came the uh, the OPT EAD delays. So uh, we all know that uh, OPT EADs were generally issued historically uh, within maybe two to three months, and then all of a sudden in 2019, uh, we had people in their fourth month and their fifth month, and sometimes their sixth month still waiting for the EAD, and that created all sorts of problems that came to the attention of international offices and uh, and general counsel of, of universities. Um, the, in some cases, the delay in employment, uh, the, the delay in issuance of the employment document resulted in people losing their jobs. Uh, Bill mentioned that uh, OPT has to be completed within 14 months following completion of study. If the EAD is not issued for six months, it eats into how much OPT anyone can get, and, and it's, it was causing, and still is causing, all sorts of problems on, on university campuses. The, uh, uh, we, we had a number of conversations that reached the level even that I think for the first time NASA uh, put on a, a litigation webinar that, uh, that uh, we spoke at, um, you know, dealing with this issue, and, and we went into it in great detail there, so I won't hear, but the bottom line is that um, it is possible to file a mandamus action. In this case, it would not be waiting for many months after the normal processing time. It would be based on the fact that um, even the normal processing time is unreasonable and causes severe hardship to, uh, to uh, students who are otherwise entitled to EADs. Uh, from a university point of view, uh, there are various ways in which you, you can be involved. The university could uh, make it known that there is this option available. In some cases, get a whole bunch of students who want to be plaintiffs in the same suit. So the university can be involved in an organizing capacity. It can be involved as a plaintiff if it wishes. It can be involved in helping the students fund the litigation if it wishes. But uh, uh, if, if 2020 uh, summer is similar to 2019, uh, this will be a huge problem, and mandamus should be thought about um, earlier rather than later. Now, are there other kinds of mandamus petitions that we've been filing that universities might want to consider? Yeah, I'll, I'll just really briefly mention that mandamus can be filed for any petition filed with the government. So you had talked about uh, unreasonable delays on H-1Bs. For sure you can do that. It can be I-140s. It can be I-485s. It can be naturalization applications. In all of those, we have significant experience where mandamus has resulted in much quicker adjudications than otherwise would have happened. Yeah, and I think it's important for folks to realize when they think about bringing a mandamus case, uh, the, the U.S. attorney who is used to dealing with you know, very significant lawsuits against the government, uh, big policy fights over, uh, you know, environmental regulations or Medicare payments or uh, things like that, or is used to dealing with criminal prosecutions, is suddenly being asked to defend to a federal judge that it takes more than three months to issue a work permit to somebody. 
the U.S. attorney doesn't want to defend that lawsuit. The judge doesn't want to hear that lawsuit. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why it's so uh, effective to file that lawsuit is uh, the agency will be pressured by the Justice Department uh, to get their act together and to get that case adjudicated. It's not a great remedy for big system-wide problems, but very often uh, hitting them with enough mandamus cases makes them uh, cause improvements to the overall processing time. So it's not just a delay that people are uh, talking about going uh, after it. There's, a, there's also denials that happen. Uh, we are seeing unprecedented number of denials. Universities and research associates can get uh, requests for evidence in many different kinds of cases that they never got before uh, and are actually seeing denials increase uh, for uh, all kinds of positions. So in uh, a, a situation where a filing has been denied, what are uh, the options for litigation? Well, first let's go through what are the options without litigation because some of these might be necessary before we bring a litigation. So the first option we always have when it comes to uh, a denial is to refile the petition. Uh, sometimes you'll get a different adjudicator and uh, sometimes that may mean a different adjudication. Because you can use premium processing for a refiling, it's expensive, but you can get uh, uh, an answer within uh, uh, 15 business days, or at least get an RFE within 15 business days, answer that, and, and get a final adjudication so that you might have a 30-day processing time on a denied uh, application. So refiling is always something that should be seriously considered. The second option that you have is a motion to reopen or reconsider. Now, this would be important if you're looking, for example, to file uh, a, uh, uh, if you have a priority date that you're trying to keep, or if you have uh, uh, a case that you think whatever was submitted initially might not have been enough, uh, or whatever. So, so a motion to reopen or reconsider allows you to add new evidence to the filing and allows you to add new legal arguments to the filing. So if the initial filing was not uh, as strong as it could be, you can sometimes reinforce it with a motion to reopen. Now a motion to reopen asks the agency to basically go back and redo the work that it did. The bad news is there's no fixed processing time and there's no premium processing of a motion to reopen. So you might be looking at a processing time of six months or more to get an answer back. Um, but sometimes that is the best answer uh, uh, for how to uh, move a case. Now the the next option is similar to that, and that is to request an administrative appeal. An administrative appeal goes to the administrative appeals office. You can submit new evidence to the administrative appeals office, and they will make a, an entirely new adjudication of the application based on whatever you submitted initially and whatever you submitted on appeal. Processing times at the AO are six months to a year, depending on the type of case that it is. Uh, but again, uh, sometimes that's the best answer if you have uh, kind of an out of the ordinary uh, experience uh, with the government uh, in terms of a strange adjudication, a strange denial. Now, all three of these options, of course, are probably things that the International Students Office can do within the confines of the International Students Office. You don't really need to go beyond that. And obviously, it is a bigger project to go into federal court. But I think it's very important to emphasize, sometimes these first three steps are a good idea based on the initial filing, but very often, but they're never necessary. 
So very often if we have a good, strong submission that should have been approved and was denied, we can go and take that agency right to federal court and say that their agency action was incorrect under the law and that we have a right to have a court order the agency to do its job right. So Dan, talk us through when uh, litigation like this is expected to be successful. So first, we, we, the standard for challenging a decision in federal court is it has to be arbitrary and capricious. So we're going to screen cases and make sure that we pick cases that are actually good to take to court because something is, you know, if, they were, if it was a coin toss, if they could have gone one way, could have gone another way, that's not really going to be arbitrary or capricious and it's going to be a really hard case to challenge. Where we're going to be successful is where there's, a, where there's an obvious mistake. They got the law wrong. They got the facts wrong. They mischaracterized the record. Um, decisions that are based on their current policy of the day and, and not actually the statute. Um, you know, USCIS has to follow the law. If they have a policy, you know, we've seen sometimes those policies don't match what's actually written in the law itself. Um, and we can challenge the, the application of the policy based on the fact that it's not consistent with the statute. Um, where USCIS has approved something over and over and over and over and over again and suddenly decides one day that it's no longer going to approve that, um, we can take that to court because, uh, you know, once, once a agency establishes a pattern of practice of decisions, if they depart from that pattern of practice, it can be arbitrary and capricious. So if they randomly change their mind without warning, uh, that's a good case for litigation. Uh, if there's a prior decision, if somebody else has litigated the issue successfully, there's a decision of a court where we can point to and say, hey, look, you know, you, you know, look, your honor, uh, somebody else, you know, another court already decided this issue and found that they were wrong. Um, that's a pretty good case too. Uh, as Bill was saying, the the we're going to want to have a good record. Uh, if the record could be improved before we actually go to court, then that's a, a reason we might consider a motion to reopen or, or an appeal. Um, one thing I will add, Bill touched on with the AAO, they make an entirely new decision. And what we've actually seen in a couple of cases is they find brand new reasons for denial that they didn't mention before. So we're a little uh, hesitant to go to the AAO unless there's a real good reason. But uh, again, in improving that record is a reason for motion to reopen or an appeal. So who can sue? This is an interesting question. If you are the uh, employer, you obviously have a right to sue if you're petitioning for somebody um, to come work for you. There is, there is some case law that says that the beneficiary of an employment-based petition may have standing to sue. Um, generally, we would prefer to have the employer uh, as a plaintiff, but it's not 100% necessary. It just makes for a cleaner and easier case and, and one that's less likely to be challenged. Um, the individual, whoever files the application or petition always has standing. The question is whether somebody else, like the beneficiary, has standing. And, and again, the answer to that is frequently yes. All right. So once you file the lawsuit, uh, how does this work? Well, when you file the complaint, there are two possible outcomes. The first one, similar to what Dan described with his case, is that the application may be settled that might be settled within the initial 60 days that the government has to answer the case, or the government might ask for an extension uh, in order to uh, process a settlement. 
Um, and it's not quite as common to get a settlement in the declaratory judgment actions uh, that we filed as it is with the mandamus cases, but it's still more than 50% uh, that the government decides not to fight, particularly in this time uh, of, uh, when we get some really crazy adjudications. And we'll talk about some of the substantive uh, problems that we're seeing and that we're being successful on uh, in just a minute. But uh, the other possibility, within 60 days, the government uh, has to give its answer. <clears throat> uh, the government will usually uh, make its arguments that the case should be dismissed or the case uh, uh, the, that the agency acted within the scope of its authority. Uh, usually that results in what are called then summary judgment motions where each side tells the judge why they think the record supports uh, their position, either the denial uh, on the government side or why it should clearly be approved if you're the plaintiff. Uh, and then the court decides that motion. Uh, if it won't settle, uh, the court can hear a motion, can, can hear arguments, but very often doesn't. The court very often decides these cases on the administrative record that's in front of it without uh, requiring a personal appearance uh, by the attorneys even. So uh, again, that timeline can be six to eight months typically um, because federal judges are graded by how many of their cases they clear out within six months. Um, uh, but it of course could take longer. Uh, so that's, a, but it's a rough idea of, uh, you know, either it's going to settle relatively quickly or, you know, usually you'll have a resolution from the judge, uh, within that sort of six to eight month time frame. I guess Bill mentioned an important point that, that uh, it, there's no trial when you're going into, um, court on a, this kind of action. It's really the court is acting as an appellate body. There's no, we're not calling witnesses. We're not doing discovery. You know, in most cases, sometimes, but in, in rare cases, um, we're not going to have a hearing where we interrogate witnesses. Uh, it's all basically done on the papers. So that's that's just a thought I'd emphasize with what Bill was saying. So why don't we talk a little bit about the um, uh, <clears throat> the, the types of cases that we most litigate for people in the university and hospital community. And I think there's three, three types of cases we should talk about. One is uh, H-1Bs, especially, especially the definition of specialty occupation. Two is O-1s and EB-1s. Uh, and three is a relatively new issue involving OPT and CPT. So, Bill, why don't you start us off with uh, 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 what our experience is on litigating on H-1B denial. Sure. The key <laughs> issue here is the government's narrowing of the definition of what it takes to be an H-1B. The H-1B is defined in the statute as a specialty occupation. That is a job which requires a specific uh, level of knowledge that's normally acquired through a bachelor's degree. Uh, the key here is that the degree in a specific field is normally required. And where we're seeing uh, problems is the Immigration Service defining increasingly narrowly uh, how many fields can be acceptable. So, for example, if you have a postdoctoral research associate in biochemistry, uh, we have seen requests for evidence where the Immigration Service says, uh, will show us that because a degree in biology and a degree in chemistry and a degree in biochemistry are all acceptable, those are multiple fields, and so it shouldn't be an H-1B. I don't think the government would push through a denial on that ground, but we have seen some that are kind of close to that. More often, you're going to see something that's in an administrative position or a computer-related position. For example, a computer systems analyst 
a person whose job it is to sort of define the business problem that the university is trying to solve and then come up with a plan to address it with an information technology solution. Very often people who are in that position will hold a degree in computer science or perhaps in engineering and have substantial background in computer science, but maybe they will have a background uh, in business or in university administration and have learned the computer side of it on the job. That's a kind of situation where the immigration service is more likely to take the position that since no specific degree in computer science is required, that uh, it should be denied as not being a specialty occupation. Now, we've been relatively successful in getting settlements of these cases by filing them uh, as declaratory judgment action. So if you have a denial, we should certainly review it with you uh, to go over whether litigation is the best way to overcome that denial. Dan, what about uh, litigating on EB1 and O1 kinds of cases for uh, extraordinary ability folks? So just, just like everything else, uh, we've seen a tightening of the criteria in this uh, area also. Um, the most common issues are either, one, they didn't, they didn't meet three of the ten tests, uh, you know, the evidentiary criteria. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, award wasn't a lesser award of national or international uh, significance um, challenges to whether or not they had a leading or critical role in a, in a distinguished organization. Um, you know, and various other of uh, those criteria. Uh, and then there's the other, they've also been challenging whether or not, even if you've met all three, you know, three out of 10 of those criteria, whether or not you are truly extraordinary um, in a final merits analysis. Um, challenging the, the failure to meet the three criteria is generally easier than the final merits analysis. Um, these are not discretionary standards. The, the, Final merits analysis under Kazarian is a little bit uh, amorphous, but it is nevertheless a legal standard that we are able to challenge. They're not able to just decide whatever they want. You know, Congress didn't give USCIS the discretion to make it up as they go. So we are able to challenge that, and we've, we've had some, some success. The interesting thing about that, Dan, is that one of the courts has decided that the national interest waiver is, uh, has discretionary standards and is not subject to federal court review, and we'll have to see if other courts agree with that. But uh, no court has said the same thing about about extraordinary ability. Uh, one of my favorite cases that I litigated, uh, we were successful in federal court on an EB1A denial, uh, and not only were we successful, but the court ordered uh, the government to pay the attorney's fees, which is always very satisfying. The last uh, type of litigation I want to talk about is uh, uh, something we saw a lot of or have seen a lot of in the last year or so, which is denials of change of status based on combined CPT and OPT time. Now, the issue here is that there's a number of situations now where USCIS has denied change of status um, to an F1 student who completed more than 12 months of CPT and OPT combined. Now, the problem with that is that that's contrary to the law, and you see the section of the regulations uh, that deals with this on your, on your screen, um, which is that, if, that any amount um, um, of CPT time that's less than one year does not, under the regulation, 
uh, prevent somebody from getting the full OPT to which he or she is entitled. Despite that, the USCIS has taken a position which appears to be contrary to the ICE position, uh, that if the F1 accrued more than 12 months of CPT and OPT combined, that's a base, that, that, that student is out of status, uh, and therefore the change of status, for example, to H1B is denied, and of course that is an issue not only of the denial of the change of status, uh, but also can create a possible issue uh, with unlawful presence for the student if there's a finding uh, that the student is out of status. So this is something we have not yet litigated. All the other things we're talking about we have uh, litigated, usually with, uh, in, in quite a number of instances. Uh, and this is something we're prepared to litigate if the, uh, if the right case comes along. And I'll chime in for universities. That this is, there are two distinct CPT issues that I see floating around out there. The first one is where people have uh, participated in what are sometimes called the visa mills, the, uh, the pay-to-stay kinds of uh, places. And that is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is perfectly bona fide CPT that's granted during a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, and immigration is now taking the position that that, that student should never have been granted OPT uh, because they had uh, this period of, of CPT, which is, as Ron just said, completely outside what the regulations uh, seem to provide. So, Bill, let's, why don't we, uh, uh, before we take questions, why don't we conclude, um, and what do you take away from everything we've, we've talked about? Yeah, so I think, look, litigation is, is never anyone's first choice. Uh, and in fact, it's probably, you know, seventh or eighth or tenth choice. But in today's environment, it has become a necessary tool uh, to both preserve the important values that are at the core of university missions in terms of serving international students, uh, and also to get results uh, that the university or the hospital or the research institution expects from the immigration system. Uh, there are some creative solutions we can provide, which can make these internal discussions about cost and about uh, uh, retribution and about publicity uh, easier so that uh, we can provide suggestions. If the biggest concern is publicity, how we can file the case to reduce the chance that there would be uh, uh, adverse publicity. Um, if, uh, if the cost is the biggest issue, how can we overcome that and, and pool resources? Um, and finally, for many kinds of cases, particularly delays, uh, we are now seeing that litigation is the only effective option. Everything else you can try and try again until you're blue in the face, but uh, only litigation and calling the government to task for the fact that you know, they've accepted a filing fee, they have a duty to adjudicate the case, uh, unless a court holds them to that duty, they would just prefer not to in some cases. Um, and finally, of course, there are these big policy changes uh, which are going on. And we've talked about the, uh, the, the F1 unlawful presence. We're going to see litigation on H4 EAD denials uh, when that regulation changes. So, uh, you know, there are these big policy changes that this administration is looking to make and litigation is one of the very effective ways to stop those kinds of changes from happening. So, uh, with that, uh, that kind of uh, uh, concludes the formal part of the presentation. We'll be happy to take 
questions from those, once again, remember the questions box or the chat box on uh, the uh, dashboard will be the best way to get us your questions. Uh, so please feel free to type those in. Now, I see one of the uh, questions that just came in. Uh, how, Ron, how can a, a university assist students without actually signing up to, to bring the lawsuit, to be the plaintiff? Yeah, I think there, there's a, a few different things, and we have talked to uh, uh, different general counsel of universities about this. Um, so, in, in a situation, uh, you know, you you talk, you know, using unlawful presence as an example, uh, there are a lot of reasons why universities would want to be plaintiffs in that kind of litigation uh, because it directly affects them and their community. But if the university doesn't want to be a plaintiff, um, in many instances, um, it can, uh, if there's going to be litigation going on, as happened with the unlawful presence litigation, uh, they can be involved in funding the litigation, including anonymously. If it's things that affect students, we talked about the, uh, the EAD delay situation. Um, I think it's perfectly appropriate for universities to advise students that there are likely to be delays, maybe very lengthy delays in the EAD process. Uh, and this can affect their status, this can affect their job, this can affect how much OPT time they can have. And rather than saying there's nothing we can do about it, uh, can talk to them about the fact that there is litigation, there are some lawyers who litigate these types of cases, uh, and they can uh, advise the students, the university can organize the students, uh, and in some cases the universities can agree to help the students defray the costs financially. So those are some of the ways that, uh, that universities can help. Great. Uh, now, we talked about, uh, when we were talking about delays, uh, there, we were talking about delays with USCIS. Uh, Dan, one of the questions that just got raised, which, which I think is an important question to, to sort of separate out, uh, is what about delays at the consulate, the delays for visas? Are, are we bringing mandamus for those cases? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there is something called the Consular Non-Reviewability Doctrine, which applies to decisions of the consulate. The failure of the consulate to make a decision generally isn't insulated from review by that doctrine. So, it, we generally, that generally is an option to compel adjudication of a visa application. And I think it's also really interesting that if you're going a little further out on the limb, not just the delays, but even visa denials may not be quite as immune from judicial review as they used to be. Uh, you know, there are even very recent Supreme Court decisions which talk about not suing the State Department for a visa denial. However, uh, one of the things that came out in that litigation was that nearly all visa denials uh, are based on databases that are maintained by the Department of Homeland Security. And so Congress made, uh, and, and really 100 years of, of, uh, of court decisions, have made decisions by a consulate immune to judicial review. But they have not done anything about these Department of uh, Homeland Security databases. So I think be, there's an interesting opportunity where visa denials have come about because of Department of Homeland Security information to not sue the consulate, but just sue the DHS and say, we want that database cleaned up so that we can make a new visa application and consular non-reviewability doesn't apply. So that's certainly uh, uh, a, a, a great question. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, 
another question has come in. Uh, if the university does bring a lawsuit, does someone have to go to court uh, about that? And, and does the university president have to go or do the international students have to show up in court? I guess the short answer to that is no one, including a lawyer, um, has to show up in court. But the, the, nobody at the university uh, ever has to show up in court. No student ever has to show up in court. And I would say if we file uh, 100 uh, litigations, it might be 5 to 10 where we as lawyers ever show up in court. So this is all done electronically on something called the PACER system. Um, and you know, even though people think of federal court litigation in a whole different way than they think of responding to an RFE or a NOID or filing an appeal with the AAO, really it's the same, just like you're not going to be going to the immigration service when you're arguing an RFE or NOID or an appeal, you're also not going to federal court when you're filing a complaint electronically. Great. Now we, we're almost at the end of our list of questions, but so uh, uh, this is your, your last chance. If you uh, do have a question you'd like to type in, please go ahead and do it. Oh, while we're waiting for that, let me mention one other thing that people should know about. Um, we expect that within the next month or so, we will be filing a, we being the American Immigration Lawyers Association and the American Immigration Council, um, will be filing a class action litigation on the issue of H-1B specialty occupation denials. Um, if you're interested in this, you can contact us. Um, we do have class action plaintiffs, but we'd like to have more. Uh, and we hope that uh, you know, rather than what we've been doing, which is filing a lot of individual H-1B litigations and where the government thinks it doesn't have a great case, it just settles so we're not making any law, our goal is to actually make law that will force the government to change how it adjudicates H-1Bs by this class action. So feel free to contact me if you have any questions about that. Great. Of course, if you have questions that come to you on the wee hours of the morning and you would like to get them answered by us, uh, please do feel free to send us email uh, afterward or to reach out to us on any of our social media. You see them up there. Uh, you can, of course, uh, find our email addresses on our website. Feel free also to send a, a general email to info at classicallaw.com. Uh, that will get directed to the most appropriate lawyer to make sure that your question gets answered. So we'd like to thank everybody for attending today. We hope you found the information useful. A recording of this webinar, again, will be available to everyone who uh, registered for the webinar, and it will be on our website as well. Uh, please also note that we regularly publish blogs, articles, and news alerts. Uh, we send those out by email and on social media, so feel free to uh, pick the social media uh, mechanism of your choice uh, and uh, and continue to engage with us. Thank you for your time, and we look forward to hearing from you.